This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. The energy of the river is going to be the energy of the river. It's going to get dissipated somewhere, and you can push the problem downstream or push it upstream, but you're not going to get rid of it. It has to lose its energy in other ways, like encountering wood or having a floodplain that it can access and spread out onto. This episode comes to you as our third installment from our annual episode of What is a River? This 2023 What is a River episode was recorded in a small airplane packed with a few river runners, a watershed scientist, a fisheries and geomorphologist expert, and a pilot who leads us along a flooding river. We flew above the entire length of the Yampa River in northern Colorado in May of this spring to witness high water and talk through the value of a wild and free river. The Yampa River is the only remaining tributary of the Colorado River that is not dammed. The Green is dammed. So is the Gunnison and the Dolores and the San Juan, as are many other smaller tributaries, and the Colorado River itself has several dams. The Yampa runs free and its water provides much of the flows into the Colorado River each year, while other rivers offer less because they are dammed. Additionally, the Yampa brings sediment to the Colorado. The Colorado River Basin is made up of rivers that carry sediment. Sediment is the food and nutrition of these rivers, the floodplains, the riparian forest, and so the role of the free Yampa is critical. The flight will take off in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, fly east into the mountain headwaters of the Yampa, then begin the 250-mile downriver traverse mostly to the west, following the Yampa from the alpine reaches down through the wide valleys where agriculture production happens, then further west into Dinosaur National Monument, where the very popular stretch of the Yampa River runs from Deer Lodge boat ramp to the confluence with the Green River at Echo Park. You will also hear talk about several other rivers in the region that confluence with the Yampa, adding flows and sediment. I was able to take this flight one day prior to running the Yampa in May of 2023 with Friends of the Yampa and American Rivers, who hosted their annual Yampa River Awareness Project, also called YRAP. YRAP is a trip bringing together Colorado River Basin water managers and conservation experts to learn from each other and to learn about the free-running Yampa. I was invited on that trip this year as a media organization. Before we rally into the skies, here are introductions of our in-flight experts. My name is Kent Vertries. I'm the Recreation and Educational Coordinator with the Friends of the Yampa. I've been with Friends of the Yampa since the 90s and have had a variety of roles dedicated volunteer, board member, board president, and now I'm staff. Kent Vertries lives in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and is our airborne river guide for the day. Kent is also an adjunct college professor at Colorado Mountain College, a backcountry ski guide, and a river guide. Today's deep water science knowledge about river hydrology and geomorphology comes from Kim Lindbergh and Mickey Means Browse. My name is Kim Lenberg. I work for Alba Watershed Consulting. It's my own consulting firm. I'm a watershed scientist based out of Boulder, Colorado on the Front Range, but we're here in Steamboat Springs this morning. I have been working on the Yampa River Scorecard Project for the past two and a half years from its inception, and basically the idea was to find a way to track changes in river health and community connection to the river over time. My name is Mickey Means Browse. I got a master's degree at Colorado State University. I combined kind of my fisheries background with fluvial geomorphology. I got hooked into Friends of the Yampa's River Scorecard Project. So I'll be working with Kim to do a lot of the data collection and analysis and then report writing. Our pilot is Gary from EcoFlight. Steamboat traffic or runway 32 for a left crosswind departure westbound steamboat. Gary is leading us through the sky in a 1978 Cessna Turbo 210. EcoFlight is an organization out of Colorado that provides air tours for media and conservation organizations working on western land and water topics. Because the majority of the audio in this episode is recorded in a plane using the microphones and airplane headsets, there are some hard audio edges. Those mics are specially designed to compensate for the loud sound of a plane and sometimes they clip out. Because of this, at times, you will hear audio gaps in the statements. All right, we're up in the air. Right now, we're flying north out of Bob Adams Airport in Steamboat. We got a beautiful day to go up in the air here overseeing the Yampa River. You know, the flows on the Yampa right now in town, it's about 3,300 cubic feet per second. Some years, like this year in 2023, we have 
one of the deepest snowpacks we've seen in the past 50 years. 2011 was the really big year. You know, we think about other big years like the early 80s. This year, it's really big. We can see Steamboat Ski Area right there, of course, and then that's Buffalo Pass on the left. That's where I get to play in the winter with Steamboat Powder Cats that I operate our snowcat skiing. What is today, the 19th of May, and you could still get after it if you wanted to. As you heard Kent make reference to the snowpack, it was a big snow year in the Rocky Mountains and across the West. This matters a lot as the majority climate of the Rockies is arid and so without big snowpack. The soils can dry up quickly and the streams will have limited flows. But this year was big and deep and people were pumped about this. The River Radius published an episode on this topic in May where we interviewed the River Basin Forecast Centers for the entire western United States. That episode is titled... 2023 Western Snowpack and River Flow, and it goes beyond the moisture and gets into the details of how these forecast centers know about every drop of water that hits the ground. And over to our south is the White River. It's the sister river of the Yampa in some regards. The Yampa, White, Little Snake are the two major, major rivers. We're climbing up into the flat top wilderness area to look at where the Yampa River begins its course, 250 miles upstream of the confluence of the Yampa and Green. It's time to announce the winner of our giveaway with Nice Kayaks. We worked together to create a giveaway package of an inflatable kayak and paddle from Nice Kayaks. We gave away their haul model. Our winner is Chris Matty. Chris runs a summer camp for kids and helps young people learn about spending time on the water. We are so glad to get this boat to Chris so he can have more fun in river time. Congratulations, Chris, and thanks for being a longtime listener of the River Radius podcast. And to all of you who joined the giveaway, thank you so much for being a part of that. We have two sponsors today for this episode, Nice Kayaks, who we did the giveaway with, and Over It Raft Covers. Nice Kayaks are based in Golden, Colorado, and is run by two river-running brothers-in-law. I've paddled these boats. There are three things that stand out to me about these inflatable kayaks from Nice. Each boat has numerous D-rings and lash points, making this a great setup for multi-day trips. One person can carry these boats when they are rolled up, and they are really fun to paddle in whitewater, which probably is the most important part of it all. They are super stable and equally nimble and fast. Right now, Nice Kayaks is offering a 20% discount on all of their boats through the end of 2023. That's 20% off. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS to get this discount. That is RIVERRADIUS, one word. Our sponsor today is Over at Raft Covers. This raft cover is built with a heavy-duty woven poly fabric that is UV-stabilized and blocks 98% of UV light. This cover is breathable and does not flap around in the wind. It is water permeable, so rain and snow does not puddle up on top of it, and it self-heals. If you poke a hole in it, the woven fabric can be massaged back to whole. I use this over at Raft Cover on my boats on my trailer right now, and I am so glad to have this product. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS for free shipping on your over at Raft Cover. That is RIVERRADIUS, one word, lowercase. Use the link in our show notes or our Instagram link tree to get right to over at Raft Covers. So the Yampa actually flows a little bit east before it goes west. That's right, yeah. It flows east and then north, and then right at Steamboat is the big bend where the river really turns course and moves directly west. It's where the river just takes off, and we'll, we'll get to see it with all the tributaries coming in. Really cool to see all this springtime green. Yeah, all the, all the flatlands, all the agricultural lands are nice and emerald and green. Up and then the aspens leafing out and more snow to melt. Yeah, and look at all the cottonwoods here. It's got a really nice cottonwood gallery. And you see the, the water flowing through these cottonwoods up against the banks and overflowing its banks at times. Cottonwoods are a big deciduous tree that grows where there is water, and so in many western river valleys, cottonwoods grow along the rivers and are typically the biggest tree in the riparian zone. They shed branches consistently and can provide excellent shade. They have big green leaves that turn a perfect yellow in the fall. Cottonwoods are of the genus Populus and have several species. A gallery of cottonwoods is a forest of these trees. One question I have, are, are cottonwoods in the galleries along the forest, is that indicative of a healthy river? Yeah, absolutely. Seeing cottonwoods is a sign of a healthy river system. The cottonwoods need disturbance to grow. 
So they basically won't reseed or recolonize without that disturbance and the new deposition of sediment with the cottonwood seeds that come down the river. And so basically, and when you see cottonwoods that are up higher on the landscape, you know that the river used to be a little bit higher and that it might be kind of uh, incising down a little bit because that's where the kind of the floodplain used to be and now it's lower than that. I've been able to see some historical photos of the Yampa before we had much development. And some of the areas, we have more cottonwoods now than we had before. Why do you think that is? It could be just a change in the disturbance regime itself. So if we had more frequent or higher flows, maybe the cottonwoods couldn't have established as well. Um, you know, changes in climate change, we've had a lot of drought years recently, so maybe those cottonwoods are able to kind of establish and, and only have their feet wet rather than being kind of flooded away before they're able to grow up big and tall. It wouldn't be because we eradicated the beaver, because I've heard that previous to European Americans coming in, a lot of our rivers, a lot of our creeks were just full of beaver, and would that have impacted the cottonwood growth? Absolutely, yeah. Cottonwood is, is a favorite of beavers, a really, really common part of most vegetation in, in riparian zones, and so that could be a big part of it as well. Most of the landscape that we can see, even if they're not on the landscape currently, they're dams and ponds and residual effects of their activities, their engineering, can be seen on the landscape and actually can interact with flooding. What's going on with wolves up here? You guys are in that territory where the, it feels like the wolves are making the national migration from the north. Are you seeing evidence? There's definitely reports of them, and part of the Colorado plan is to release some wolves here in the flat top area. We're going to have some wolves that are transported in place because you see all this this wilderness area, all these big forests, and there's plenty of habitat supposedly for these wolves to come in. But we have been seeing them because Steamboat Springs, and we're in the north part of the, the state. You can see the Steamboat Ski Area there. Beyond that is North Park, where the wolves have been coming down in from, the naturally migrating down from the Yellowstone, Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And it's uh, definitely a confrontational uh, decision we've made to replant wolf. We're not going to fly directly over it, but the headwaters are right there over that mountain. That's the Devil's Causeway. That Stillwater Reservoir is going to be on the other side. The Bear River comes in. Down a Yampa, we can't really see it here, but that's where two creeks come together, Phillips Creek and the Bear River, and they form the actual beginning of the Yampa River. We're looking straight ahead at Stagecoach Reservoir, and if we can go that way, that would be great. You can see the remnants of the volcanoes here by the town of Yampa. Those volcanoes used to be much, much higher, and they spilled lava over, and that's why the flat tops were created. The old lava field way, 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 way back when. But the Yampa comes in where those clouds are up in the flat tops, right on the ridge line on the other side. Bear River comes down and then works its way north into um, the town of Yampa where it really turns into the Yampa River. And then here's a good view straight ahead of Stagecoach Reservoir. That is a main stem reservoir on the Yampa River. But it's so high up here in the headwaters, the river's coming in at 200 CFS. So we know the confluence where the Yampa was flowing at 20,000. So this reservoir does not impact the real hydrology of the river at high water, hence why we call it a wild hydrograph. Some even still call it a free-flowing river because this reservoir does not impact the greater Yampa River. The Yampa is called a wild river, and yet there are two dams and reservoirs on the main stem Yampa, and they are small. Per the numbers, the volume flowing into Stagecoast Reservoir on our flight day was 1% of the total volume at the Deer Lodge River Gauge, which is about 200 miles downstream. Yeah, the flows upstream of Stagecoach the other day were like 219, and they were letting out 199, so they call that a run of rivers. It's basically what goes in comes out. One of the nice parts about having this little reservoir upstream of Steamboat is when the river does get the base flows and the river, you know, a wild river, we see this really high peak like we're seeing today, but then it, it crashes because all the snow melts off, basically. Then we can release water out of the Stagecoach Reservoir to help the river health downstream. We can shepherd water from this reservoir, 
going through and helping the agricultural folks out, helping the environment of the river out. And it's really been a great partnership between the Colorado Water Trust, the City of Steamboat, and other partners like the Friends of the Yampa, where we've, we've worked with the reservoir operations to provide cold water downstream so when the river's low water, it's hot, we can get cold water in the river, really benefit the environment and ag. And we can see Catamount Reservoir, a small, basically a private reservoir. Is Catamount Reservoir also main stem? Yes. Yeah, but it's it's much smaller than even Stagecoach. Yeah. It's basically a private reservoir. Are they managing the flows out of that? Catamount's just a spillover. It's not the greatest for the health of the river because the, the water that's coming out of Stagecoach is cold and then it goes into Catamount. Yeah. And Catamount's a shallow reservoir that heats water up and then you get water coming out of Catamount that's warmer. Better for those invasive species. After the headwaters and looking at the two small reservoirs up in the high country, we fly north a bit and then west down the river, passing over Steamboat Springs and get to the next big drainage joining the Yampa. The Elk River is a 34-mile-long river coming in from the north. The Elk River, which we're going to see here really quick, is running about 5,000 cubic feet per second. So the Elk River is coming in from the north towards the, uh, the town of Clark, and it comes directly out of the Mount Zirkel wilderness to our east. The elk right now is flooding over its banks, connecting to the, the floodplain and doing what a river does. The elk is truly a undammed river. There's lots of agriculture on it, but you'll see here, this river is definitely moving fast downstream. And the elk river is a unique drainage where it's one of the most productive rivers in the west for the square mileage of its watershed, it produces more water than most rivers. It's about a third of the size of the headwaters of the Yampa above the confluence of the elk and the Yampa, and it always produces more water than the Yampa. And that's testament to these mountains, this park range, is this catcher's mitt of snow. You can see in the, in the hands all the water that's up in the fields itself over the ditches and this lower elk right here really flooded a few weeks ago but right now it's definitely overflowing its banks and really filling in the low spots and you see some of these houses here that are just positioned pretty pretty precariously in the floodplain really uh, on the edge of flooding out themselves like look at this house it's barely holding on tight i mean those guys are fully flooded you can't even get to their house right now. Here to our left is the confluence of the Yampa and the Elk. The Yampa's coming in at about 3,300 cubic feet per second, and the Elk's at 5,000. So below the confluence, the Yampa River really changes, doubles in size once the Elk comes in. From here downstream, um, it's just a really productive agricultural landscape and lifestyle. The Yampa provides a lot of historical use in the agricultural community, and you can see the flooding that's just occurring. The historical floodplain is like miles wide, right? And so this is what a river is meant to do, flow its banks, and it's amazing to see. Yeah, so with your scorecard, are you documenting that historic floodplain? You can see the paleohydrology in some ways. Yeah, we're using elevation data just to tell us what the um, natural historic floodplain is and then what the active floodplain is. So, Kim, you're saying it's a, it's miles wide. It's just the valley bottom, right? Yeah. And so it's in this part of the Yampa, it's a lot wider than the Elk, for example, which is very narrow. Those look like some oxbows right there. Yep, all the places that the river once was. Yeah, the river, the river goes through a little canyon right here, and it opens up, and you can see the Morgan Bottoms right there. Looking west, where the Nature Conservancy has their property, kind of in the town of Hayden. Kim, can you talk about what you're seeing here for us? Yeah, so basically after a river comes out of a canyon and it opens up into a flatter area, it loses a lot of power, and so it drops its sediment, right? And so... Um, that's what it's doing here, and sediment is really important for a lot of different reasons, and one of them is the riparian vegetation. Like 
Cottonwood galleries and things like that. It allows them to thrive. Talk more about sediment. To me, it feels like there's two things. There's distribution from the mountain country of sediment coming on the floodplain, but then the flood water that comes behind the sediment is also washing it away. Yeah, so we just entered a depositional environment is what we call that. And so that depositional environment takes that hill slope sediment that's being brought from the transportation or transport environment and can create those kind of mid-channel islands, creates those anastomosing or braided systems and then those mid-channel islands can vegetate with perennial vegetation or seasonal vegetation. That's where you get that kind of wide, expanding, connected floodplain where you have multiple channels and it's spreading. But within that depositional environment, sediment can be re-transported or redistributed. As we continue west, now 20 miles downstream from the Elk River confluence, we come to another drainage merging with the Yampa, this time Elkhead Creek. Here off the right side, we got a good view of the Elkhead Creek drainage coming out of the Bears Ears and California Park. Elkhead comes into the Elkhead Reservoir, which is totally full of water right now. It is maxed out. They are dumping water out of that reservoir pushing it downstream. It's about 1,500 cubic feet per second. It was in the 2000s here last week. That reservoir is managed for a lot of reasons, agricultural, municipal, as well as endangered fish flows. So they can, at low water specifically, they can release flows out of Elkhead to help support the several species of endangered fish that live in the lower Yampa Colorado River system. What fish are those? So we have four endangered fish, the Colorado pike minnow, the razorback, the humpback chub, and the bony tail, all big water Colorado River system fish that uh, used to flourish here in the Yampa, lower Yampa Basin specifically. But all the way down through the Grand Canyon, through the Colorado River system, the Dolores, the White River, these fish used to just inhabit these lower Colorado rivers. Now they're eking on to an existence that may be lost, unfortunately. The Damming and dewatering of these river systems has really impacted their life cycles. The Yampa, because of its wildness and the fact that it still does what river does, you know, it overflows its banks, it scours, it uh, habitat for the endangered fish. Um, the the Yampa is one of these critical uh, river systems that helps keep these endangered fish having some sort of future. The story of rivers and fish always seems to be that the native fish struggle because of human-created changes in the river, like water temperature, pollution, and non-native fish that have been relocated from one ecosystem and river to another. All of that has happened to the Colorado River Basin, of which the Yampa River is part of. The addition of the dams to rivers across the Colorado Basin means that the native fish can no longer swim down and up rivers connecting huge landscapes. The Yampa River today is still a great place for the Colorado pike minnow to raise its young, and this is a big fish. Historically, the largest Colorado pike minnow were six feet in length, and they lived for almost five decades. Today, the pike minnow is an endangered fish in the Colorado Basin. The pike minnow was known to travel from the north region of the state of Colorado, where it raised its young on the Yampa River, all the way down the Yampa to the Colorado River, all the way down the Colorado River to the southern Arizona region near California and Mexico, and then turn up the Gila River and go all the way east, across Arizona, and into New Mexico. That is how the native fish of the Colorado Basin lived, cruising up and down the rivers, connecting waters and places. The other native fish that are endangered are the humpback chub, the razorback sucker, and the bony-tailed chub. Now they are relegated to the stretches between dams and reservoirs, and the reservoirs are home to so many of the transplanted non-native fish, which are hardcore predators on native fish. Now we're getting out of Little Yampa Canyon, and again, more large meandering river, muddy, chocolate brown river, with the side channels that are filled up now, they're a little different color. You can uh, really see that connectivity between the main river and all these little side channels, and you can kind of see the historical flows and the old, old oxbows that the river maintains. Those side channels create fish habitat. It's warmer as the water recedes. We call that refuge habitat, especially when you have endangered fish interacting with invasive fish. 
that's a way that they can kind of get out of the high flows, get away from those predators. Connection to the secondary habitat is really critical, especially at a time when you have emergence of egg to fry. That's a way for them to kind of hunker down and get fat and healthy. The secondary habitat is up on the floodplain? On the floodplain, side channels, anywhere that there's a way for them to get cover. Sometimes those side channels are better at, at retaining large wood or healthy riparian vegetation that may not be as prevalent in the main stem. So that secondary habitat can provide habitat for all life stages versus just larger fish that can handle the high flows and get away from predators. Do you see this spot over here that like the, the river's kind of... I don't know what direction, but it makes a big a big U-turn, and there are spots. So most of the river's brown because it's got sediment low, but then there's spots that are darker. Is that water that has had the sediment dropped out? Yep, that's just, a, that's deposition happening in real time. So those areas are just slower, slower velocity, or there's maybe more roughness. So one of the ones that I can see is in kind of what I would consider like a little bay or an eddy. Um, so that slower water allows that sediment to drop out. That's and that's cool. That's good. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's probably some of that fish uh, hideout, whatever you call that, that they're hanging out up in there, kind of. Yeah, yeah, especially if you know they're younger fish or maybe fish not as well adapted to this silty environment that the flood creates. They can hang out in those areas that have kind of early, early sediment deposition and get that kind of clear, clear water, clear their gills a little bit. So they, they need to have their their gills cleaned. They can survive, so they do thrive in environments with disturbance, so it's not completely fatal to be in sediment, but if it's prolonged or, you know, it's ash or things that can't get out of it, then that could lead to fatality. Mickey and Kim, can I ask you a question? Flooding is, I don't, I don't even think flooding is a great word, because it, it suggests this horrible thing, this abnormal behavior of the river, but it seems like it's so healthy and so right for the river to do it, and it's really the way the river valleys are formed, and the river has a place to go. Can you just talk about how healthy that is? I, I know it can hurt humans and it hurts homes and all these things, but irregardless of that, the value of high water in a river valley. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, definitely the word has a little bit of a negative connotation when you're talking about people, but I will say that what Kent was talking about earlier with the natural river has really, really high flows and really low flows, right? And so those peak flows are the things that kind of sustain the health of the river because they allow for things to happen and they allow for the native species to kind of excel and survive. Like the cottonwoods are made to handle disturbance. They basically will only regenerate when flooding is happening. The native fish species, they need those refugia so that they can survive. And like all the Native species that are in these lands depend on those peak flows to mess things up and have a lot of complexity and heterogeneity in the river, you know. And the thing about humans is we want to be close to the rivers, and so we build on it. So then the flooding becomes a huge issue for us, but the river was meant to erode and deposit. That's what a river does. It's dynamic. It moves around. It takes all the parts of its floodplain. Yeah, we can consider a flood to be regenerative because it's bringing in nutrients and sediment and, and wood and seeds and anything that you can imagine coming from upstream and that continues those nutrient cycles. We can call floodplains kind of these, these powerhouses for regeneration of life. Here we have a great view of that. That's the confluence of the Little Snake and the Yampa. And it's a really beautiful place. The cottonwood forest and that gallery that's right in between is flooded right now. That's helping regenerate that cottonwood forest. This is a really cool spot. The Yampa's coming in. The Yampa contributes significantly more water than the Little Snake. Something like 80% of the flow of the river below the confluence coming from the Yampa. But the Little Snake's bringing in all the sediment. Something like 80% of the sediment. I don't know if those figures are exact. You can see it right there. It's way more chocolate milky. There's all the sediment coming through. The Yampa's running at about 10,000 CFS right now, maybe 12,000, and the Little Snake's coming in with about 6,000 CFS. And therefore, we have our confluence right here at Deer Lodge Park, and that's running today around 20,000. My numbers aren't exactly right, but the Little Snake is super important for contributing sediment to the entire river system from here down to Lake Powell. That has a large contribution of the sand and the silt and the sediment to the entire river system. When you think about 
impacting flows on the Yampa upstream or impacting flows on the Little Snake, it could really do some damage to the health of the river system downstream from this point. Sediment. The fine, tiny pieces of earth that are in the river moving downstream, the river grabs them, and then by sheer speed the sediment is lofted into the current, clouding the visual clarity of the water, and it travels downriver until the current slows or stops, and that sediment falls down. Sediment layers up and becomes soil. It is the nutrition of the riparian habitat, of the floodplains, of the riverbed, and when rivers reach the oceans, the sediment is part of the estuary and then the ocean. If rivers are only allowed to carry water, they are not able to feed the land and riverscape of this planet. The very first episode in this series called What is a River published in 2021, and my guest was Dr. David Montgomery from the University of Washington in Seattle. When I asked him, what is a river? He said this. You know, the way I see it, a river is clouds tearing down mountains as they return to the sea. And that has become a baseline for how I now understand rivers and how I deliver this podcast. So when I think of a river, I think of something that delivers water, sediment, and like wood to a system. And so let's say there's a reservoir built, so it keeps all the sediment back, but it lets some water keep going down. And so you get something called hungry water, where it's very erosive because it wants to have some of that sediment. It's made have that sediment in the system and so when it's not there it'll end up eroding the banks trying to make up for that you see that on the green river coming out of flaming gorge a lot of the landowners and the ranchers talk about hungry water and how it's impacting their lands they're just seeing more erosion happening yeah so it'll erode from the banks but it can also kind of erode from the bed and that's what causes it to get lower down and then it has an even harder time accessing its floodplain, and so the problem just gets exacerbated. In geomorphology, it actually can lead to long-term changes in the morphology of the river, the shape of the river, and how it actually functions with its landscape and its environment, which can impact species, and the way that we expect to use the river can be changed because we no longer have that cyclical connection. But what happens with, uh, so hungry water is void of sediment, and it's clear, and it's probably cold coming out of a dam. But also, when there's not sediment in the water, does that change the temperature because there's nothing in the in the water for the sun to warm up? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure about that connection. There's definitely concern with water that doesn't connect to its floodplain or doesn't allow the growth of these mid-channel islands because you lose that riparian vegetation. That connection to the floodplains, people a lot of times think about it spreading out and getting shallower and getting warmer and that being a concern, but what we actually find is that water getting out onto the floodplain actually increases connection with the groundwater, with the water table, and that can lead to mitigation of temperatures within the stream. And then also when you're slowing down the water and it's interacting with those roughness elements, like Kim was talking about, like vegetation and wood and and even just channels, we actually find that depths are, are higher because the water is slowing down and stacking up on itself. So that's kind of something that people take for granted, you know. I'm not sure about the actual sediment interaction with temperatures in the water. I've heard that referenced lower down in the desert on the Colorado Plateau. Like in the Grand, when the water comes out of Glen Canyon, it's obviously already cold, but it has no sediment in it to allow the sun to hit it and become a, a thing that gets warmed yeah. up. There's huge interactions with temperature and dissolved oxygen, of course, and that also can be impacted by sediment in the water. Just the viscosity of the water itself can decrease dissolved oxygen, and higher temperatures can decrease dissolved oxygen, which is, of course, super important for aquatic species. That's another thing we think about in water quality is how much oxygen is available. And then also when you think about the increases of fine sediments like silts and, and smaller sands, those things can fill larger sediments. So we, we talk about what's called interstitial spaces. That's the, the voids within the, the larger sediments. Those interstitial spaces are super important for aquatic macroinvertebrates to thrive and lay eggs and eat and be protected from species to continue on their life cycle. But when you fill those with finer sediments or you don't, you don't have a diversity of sediments, that can be an issue. Interstitial? Interstitial. Interstitial spaces, are they 
in place in the river, like on the riverbed, or are they in the river moving? It's like the voids in, in between the cobbles and gravels. So they're static on the, on the riverbed. Yeah, bed. so it's what makes up the riverbed. And so when you walk on the Amber River, in most places, we just did our scorecard project last year, we measured the health of the macroinvertebrate communities in seven different spots along our riverscape, and they all got really high grades. And so if you walk on the Yamp, in most places, you'll see that there are cobbles that you could easily pick up, right? Like they're not like stuck in the sediment and the sand and kind of hard to pick up because they're really embedded. They're really easy to pick up. And that means that there are voids between those rocks and the rest of the bed substrate, and that allows for the aquatic invertebrates, the bugs that the fish eat oftentimes, to have a place to live in a diverse community. And so when those get filled up by fine sediments, then that becomes a problem. And fine sediment itself is not a terrible issue, but if you don't have this this cycle of flooding and flushing flows, then it can become armored, is what we call it, or kind of concreted together, and then you lose those interstitial spaces. It, because the, the low-flow, high-flow season of the river moves the sediment out, doesn't allow it to concrete in. Yeah, exactly. Today's episode is sponsored by Over It Raft Covers. Right now, my boats are inflated sitting on a trailer and they are covered with a raft cover from Over It Raft Covers. This is my first season using this cover and it is so much better than the ridiculous plastic tarps I used and destroyed for years. This Over It Raft Cover is perfectly shaped for my boat. It has slots for the oar towers and it has solid D-rings sewn on to secure this to the trailer or to a raft. These covers are designed and sold by Kevin, a river runner who likes to keep his boat well protected and ready to go on the trailer. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS for free shipping on your over at Raft cover. That is RIVERRADIUS, one word, lowercase. Use the link in our show notes or our Instagram link tree to get right to over at Raft covers. Nice Kayaks is sponsoring today's episode. Nice Kayaks builds inflatable kayaks and duckies. Their flagship model, the Nice Haul, is meant for multi-day trips with a 500-pound weight capacity. Nice Ride is a single-person version of the flagship model, meant for big water. And the Nice Nugget is a fun and light Class 3 creek boat for surfing waves. These boats have drop-stitch floors that you can stand on, and they come out for easy cleaning. These boats are easy to manage and super fun to paddle. Right now, Nice Kayaks is offering a 20% discount on all of their boats through the end of 2023. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS to get this discount. That is RIVERRADIUS, one word. So, what's it called? Dissolved oxygen. You're saying it's very important for the river, for the aquatic species. What, what takes away dissolved oxygen? Higher temperatures can actually cause the water to release that oxygen. Um, and so, that's why... Not only are fish impacted by high temperatures just because it's hot, but they're impacted by high temperatures because they lose that availability of oxygen within the water column. Also critical, of course, for macroinvertebrates, they actually have a lot of macros in the larval stage, the, the stage that they're actually in the water before emergence. They're actually breathing oxygen underwater as well. They have gills to do the same, just like fish. And then it's important, of course, for microbes and bacteria in the water and Parafitin, algae, anything that's living and growing in the water needs dissolved oxygen. When the Yampa gets low up in Steamboat Springs, teetering around that 100 CFS level, the city of Steamboat Springs works with Colorado Parks and Wildlife to look at river flow, river temperature, and dissolved oxygen. If the dissolved oxygen is lower than a certain amount, temperature is higher than a certain amount in the river. Because this this river doesn't have a large-scale reservoir to regulate those flows. When the river gets that low, there's a lot of people on the river recreating. A thousand tubes on the river, you know, people floating down the river. The tubing hatch, and as the river gets too low, we want to respect the environment and the fish and the habitats. The river gets low, temperature goes up and dissolved oxygen goes low, and you want to de-stress the river so you take all the recreators out of the river, and we actually close the river for access. What is the, the threat that the recreators provide to the river? Well, you know, at, the, at those low flows, there's not as much um, expanse for the fish to go and uh, spread out. We want to limit any impacts to that. We don't want a fish kill. 
So when the river gets low, you want these fish to have less stress on them. Now, if you imagine that recreators and fishermen are all congregating around those those deeper pools at that time of year, the fish need to be able to sit in those and recover and have refuge from those higher temperatures and, and lower dissolved oxygen environments. But if you have everyone sitting right there trying to hammer them, then they're pressured to move out of the refugia and can press to the point of, of not being able to recover. How does the community of Steamboat respond to being told they can't be in the river? You know, I, I believe because of our the love for the river that our community has, people respect it and they get out of the river. It's, it's frustrating. Does. Everyone does. You know, from the permitted outfitters who are allowed to tube on the river to the fly fishing companies, everyone respects it, and we tuck tail and run. And, and it's hard for the tourists who are coming to town because they realize... Oh my gosh, this is one of our favorite things to do. We come to Steamboat and we tube the river. It's an opportunity for us to teach them about the health of the river, the, the impacts of tourism, or the impacts of, of uh, stressing fish and, and the environment. And as well as, you know, when you think about managing a wild river, there's a lot of beautiful things. Not many rivers get to overflow their banks anymore. But then it's difficult for us in the low water times because we don't have that major reservoir releasing bigger flows out of the river. Granted, we do have stage that does that for us. But it's a, a little conundrum in sorts. Some people would say, why don't you dam this river? Why don't you hold back this water so you can release it later? And we just go back to the fact that it's actually a beautiful thing to have this river. The flight you are hearing was in May of this year, and we were all surprised as we flew into a layer of smoke as there were no fires in the region. We quickly learned in the plane that the smoke was from wildfires in Canada. Those fires in Canada eventually became big deals over the summer, but at that point, in the spring, we were not very aware of them yet. The topic of smoke, fires, and climate change played into our conversation. I'm curious about the idea of the floodplain and the regenerative, regenerative, I'm not saying that right, but that word, the value of that, of the free-flowing river, of these ribbons of water, and then here being in the smoke from these fires from Canada so far away, the value of having these rivers to be free-flowing, healthy riparian zones, places for animals, places for coolness, literal temperature drops, and how sustaining that into this climate change era that we're really walking into. Like, what, what will that do for portions of a healthy uh, landscape? Yeah. So these systems are evolved to have this disturbance, and that disturbance allows different life stages and life histories to thrive and survive through these changing times, allowing species to be able to recover from high temperatures and, and high floods and maybe these catastrophic wildfires, these systems are kind of our last refuge for those species, especially when you consider that in a floodplain environment is naturally connected. You have a higher water table and that higher water table supports healthy vegetation that can survive through wildfire or at least recover quickly if it does burn through. And having a place to retain higher floodwaters. Maybe we have higher runoff due to fire, those healthy riparian areas, and plains can actually retain some of that sediment and ash and things that we're concerned with as humans for, you know, clean drinking water and our infrastructure. Actually maintaining these environments on the landscape can help downstream users be protected from extreme climate events. The riparian areas also act as natural filters so that when it gets to the main river channel, it's actually cleaner than when it entered the floodplain, which is pretty important when you talk about things like wildfires and then the climate change aspect with less water. I'm thinking back in the airport, Kim, you were talking about this, this comparative work you're doing with these older floodplain maps. You have an idea of where the flooding will happen, but then today, up here in the plain, you get to see the flood. How does that work help Friends of the Yampa, American Rivers, other river organizations, state, federal groups do work to help rivers kind of regain some of their free flow, some of their latitude when it comes to flooding so they can reach up into the floodplains. What, what will that information do for you yeah. and other groups? The 
scorecard project in its entirety, kind of this tracking changes over time. A big part of it is to help highlight opportunity areas. Let's say there's a berm that's not being used anymore or something like that, and that's like really causing the flows to stay in the main channel instead of spreading out into the floodplain. So the scorecard would give that kind of a lower rating and it would highlight it as an opportunity area so that management decisions can be made, do a project and get rid of it. That's like a small example. One thing we've been noticing with a lot of the agricultural land is if a field is grazed right to the channel, there's a lot of erosion and a lot of even unnatural erosion. But if there was a small riparian buffer that was created, that would kind of mitigate that a little bit and it would create a healthier system. And so things like that, we're trying to kind of highlight that people can do projects and keep the river as healthy as it possibly can, especially as, you know, less water and climate change and things like that impacted in a negative way over time as well. You know, if my banks are falling in and my fence is falling into the river, your first instinct might be to put a bunch of riprap in there to, you know, stabilize the bank and stop that from happening. But we noticed on our floats last year on the middle Yampa, everywhere where there was riprap or other types of bank stabilization, right downstream of that, there was a ton of accelerated erosion. So you're basically just making it somebody else's problem right. as opposed to looking at a more holistic solution that could actually benefit everybody. Because the energy of the river is going to be the energy of the river. It's going to get dissipated somewhere. And you can push the problem downstream or push it upstream, but you're not going to get rid of it. It has to lose its energy in other ways, like encountering wood or having a floodplain that it can access and spread out onto. The flood, the, the, the actual water, the energy of the water, goes up into the floodplain and literally slows down. Yep, it hits, like things that give it roughness, you know, whether it's wood, whether it's cottonwood trees, whether it's somebody's infrastructure, you know, whether it's a bank stabilization, but there are different ways of letting the energy dissipate. Some of them might be more sort of, I don't want to say healthy, but, you know, more beneficial to more things than others. You all are doing this scorecard project on the Yampa, a several-year project. Like, what's, what's your... What's your general thoughts on the health of the Yampa, kind of from the headwaters down to that confluence we were at? So in comparison to other Colorado rivers and other western river systems, its reputation is true because it retains that natural hydrograph. It is, by comparison, one of the more healthy rivers. And the middle Yampa segment that we just scored this past year got a score of a B. And so it scores pretty well, but the point of the scorecard really, yes, we have this gem, and it's wonderful, and it doesn't exist hardly anywhere else. And so what are the opportunity areas to make it even better? And what are the areas that we need to protect to make sure somebody doesn't decide to build a dam downstream or something like that? And that's, I think, one of the main goals is, like, public education. The Yampa Scorecard Project has a pretty detailed but very accessible website um, that can be accessed by, you know, the general public, and it tries to put things in a way that people can understand them. So yampascorecard.org is the website, and its mission is really to try and educate people and to see that even though we do have this wild, healthy river, there are still things we can do to protect it and potentially enhance or improve it. So, gang, if I can interrupt, here we are at Echo Park. This is the end of the Yampa River, 250 miles coming downstream right here. We can see Steamboat Rock, this large pillar of Weber sandstone that comes in. And the river, the Yampa comes in, it hammers into this rock, and it joins the Green River at the confluence, and then comes directly around Steamboat Rock, one of the most iconic places and confluence in the West. Right in the heart of Dinosaur National Monument, this is the joining of two rivers and really interesting the Yampa being the wild river the green river with a major reservoir upstream you have basically three rivers here the Yampa the green and then this hybrid river right downstream it's a really great science location where you have again wild river managed river and then this hybrid and we're able to tinker with the flows of the green mimicking the peak flows of the Yampa in some regards working with temperature to try to enhance the endangered downstream and all the ecosystems and what a what a cool place right there so you're seeing the gates of Lador coming right through here that's the green and this river this dinosaur national monument is just blessed with two of the major western river trips 
the gates of the door, the Yampa Canyon, and them joining there at Echo Park and going downstream through Whirlpool Canyon and Split Mountain Canyon. We're actually looking right down at the largest rapid on the Yampa at Warm Springs. The Warm Springs draw that comes in from the north and goes right down into uh, the Warm Springs Rapid right there. And as we know, this area was proposed for a reservoir back in the 50s, part of the large push to dam our rivers in the west. And everything we see here in some regards would be covered by a large reservoir that would go all the way upstream to Deer Lodge. If it wasn't for people pushing hard to preserve the integrity of our national park systems and public land, we, uh, we wouldn't have what we have today with Yampa Canyon. After Echo Park, we flew back upriver and landed at the airport. Our incredible pilot Gary from EcoFlight brings us to a gentle landing after that early morning tour and sends us back to our land-based life. Okay, I'm going to shut everything down here. Cool, thanks, thank you. Gary. Thank you, Gary. All right, thank thanks, you, guys. Thank you, EcoFlight. A wild and free-running riverside thank you goes out to my flight companions who are today's guests, to EcoFlight for getting us up in the air, to the Yampa River Awareness Project, and to Friends of the Yampa and American Rivers, and to Oars for hosting the Wrap trip. Today's sponsors are Nice Kayaks and Over It Raft Covers. Both of these sponsors are offering you discounts on their products. Use the promo code RIVERRADIUS. That is one word, RIVERRADIUS, lowercase. You can find links for all of these businesses and groups from this episode in the show notes, which are located in your podcast player. Most images associated with this episode come from the camera of Kent Vertries. There are two previous episodes of What is a River from 2021 and 2022. They are in your podcast player and in the show notes. Here at the River Radius, our social media expert is Samantha Sice. Today's music is composed and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. If I were to say to you, what is a river? How, how would you answer that? It's always neat to see a confluence. Like right up here, we've got the Little Snake and the Yampa. You can see how they're connected at a very exaggerated state because of the flows. I see rivers as representing the beginning of pretty much all life on Earth at, at different scales and time frames. It's a place that has connection in three dimensions, vertical, horizontal, and lateral. The river for me is, is a living and breathing life source for us. It's not only a, a, a resource for us, but it's a, it drives my life force in some ways. It's home. It's like where I feel at home, where I always want to learn more about, where I always want to be at.